Well, we've been um, walking through the Beatitudes and this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, one of the good things is when this kind of helps you think about things and spur things, spur even questions. And um, so last week, you know, someone asked me when this, in the Beatitudes, when Jesus is talking about those who hunger for righteousness, you know, what is, what is righteousness? And um, part of the answer, the more detailed answer, is going to come out when we look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus is going to unpack that for us, really give us a real clear examples, specific examples of what it looks like and what it is. And in, it's one of those terms that's somewhat elusive for us because it has meanings that, um, that may or may not be um, correct or they're kind of generalized, but um, I'm going to take my stab at it here to give you an, what I think is righteousness. Righteousness is when, is when we have this right relationship with God. So our relationship with God is right in such a way that all we do is right. Everything we do is right, and we do it for the right reasons. It's not enough just that we feel that we're in a right relationship with God, like there's no problems. It's not enough that we're just doing the right actions. It's not enough that we just have the right reasons. They all have to kind of come together, and that's, that's what righteousness is. And I think what happens is people pull out a piece of that, and they think that's all that righteousness is, a lot of times we want to think like it's some sense of morality, which is part of the answer, but it's really not the whole answer. And we often forget that the whole point of this is that we would have this right relationship with God. We would have this, this, this fellowship with God. But then that raises the question again, what is right? And what does that mean? And that's why it always keeps coming back to this same thing, is that if you want to know what is right, you have to know God's word. And if you want to know God's word, you have to be his disciple. So this whole thing that we're talking about, discipleship, is, it's so important. It's fundamental to everything that we, that we believe and that we are, because otherwise these are just words. And you can make those words mean whatever you want. But when we're disciples, we are trying to understand what, what God means by these words. One of the big dangers, in, I think, in my life and anyone's life is when, is, when we, is when we think we understand something way more than we do. And it's even worse when we think we understand everything about something because that's when we can often end up in these, in these problems, these errors, where we're so convinced we're right about something that we're going to tell everybody how right we are. And, of course, that usually wars against this other thing in us, which is, which is supposed to be in us as disciples, which is humility. So we've talked about um, what disciples feel. So if you feel the, what we saw in, the, in those first um, few verses, you know, it's that feeling of knowing who you are in respect to God. It's this feeling of knowing who we are and how we relate to others. 
that there's these feelings that we should have as disciples. This shouldn't be just kind of a hollow show. It shouldn't just be discipleship is an act or the discipleship is just learning information, uh, like going to school and you know, going to a class that you don't think has any relevance to your, to your life. No, there should be feelings. And some of those, those, those feelings are, are things that we've talked about, these things about humility, these feelings of, of just how awesome God is. And they always come back to something very, very positive in our lives. But we also talked last week not just about feelings. Last week we talked about motivation. What should motivate us? And, and you know, we, as we just talked about, what should motivate us is that we have this hunger and thirst for righteousness. That we're not going to be, um, not going to be satisfied until we are righteous and we know what is righteous. And we seek after it, we hunger after it. And that you know, kind of goes against a lot of, of our, uh, you know, it kind of goes against a lot of just how we are and not just modern times, but kind of in Hawaii too. Like, you know, we don't, we don't like to say like, oh, I really, really, really want this. I really hunger after this. It's kind of like, you know, we kind of always want to be you know, have things under control and, and we don't want to get too high and too low. And that's really not what Jesus is allowing us to do. That if we're going to be his disciples, that we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is going to be as much a need as eating and drinking. Well, this week, this week, we go from how disciples feel, what motivates them to, what do disciples do? And we've talked about this before, and so it's not going to be like a totally new thing. But let me just say up front, and I might repeat it at the end, something that you know, I said a few months ago, that if I want to assess my own spiritual maturity, or if I want to look at the spiritual maturity of someone else, or if I want to look at the spiritual maturity of us as a church, how healthy as a, as a church are we? How mature are we in our faith? It comes back to this, what disciples do, what we're going to talk about today. Because everything else, it's, it's difficult. What's difficult is I can't tell when I look here, I can't tell you know, if somebody is spiritually growing. Now, sometimes people come up and say things after and say, this really helped me. This was really good. Or that helped clear up something. And I know some of you are in Bible studies here at the church and other places, and, and you, know, you, you know that you're, you're growing. But I really can't tell. And even if you tell me, I can't really tell. All I know is that you told me. And so it would be really good if there was something that had to go beyond just you telling me or me observing or me telling you about what I know and what I think. It'd be really good to know if there was some, something that, that we could do, something that, that would demonstrate our maturity. And there is. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because it is this thing that it's, it's not the thing that we talk about is so important that distinguishes us from the world, 
But it is one of those actions, it is one of those attitudes that should distinguish us from most of the world. And it has to do with when we deal with conflict, when we deal with disagreements, when we deal with the, our feelings are hurt. What do we do? Well, when we're, we want to have peace. We want to have peace. We want everything to kind of look at least like we're getting along. But how do we get there? Especially when we disagree. Well, in the world, peace usually comes through, through two ways. It comes through conquest. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Somebody overpowers, somebody out-argues, somebody defeats in some way, and somebody loses. So it's some kind of conquest, some kind of power struggle that takes place, and, and, and then when somebody wins, there's at least the look that there's peace. Everybody's getting along. There's no conflict. The other one is compromise. You know, it's like, okay, I'll give a little, you give a little, we're gonna kinda work it out, and that's great. But there are certain situations and there are certain things that, on which we should not compromise. And so if, comprom if peace, the only way to peace is either through con conquest, and I don't really want to do conquest, and then it's compromise, you always have to ask yourself, what are you compromising? You know, if, if, if you know, we were suddenly aware that this building was on fire, and then we were thinking like, okay, the building's on fire, and some people are saying, you know, we should just stay right where we are, and other people are saying, no, we need to get out of here. And then someone goes, oh, I gotta compromise. Why don't we go halfway? Let's just all move to the back. That's the compromise, right? That would be a terrible compromise. Compromises are not always the best way to go, but we sometimes like them because it's kind of like, oh, everybody wins. And again, for a lot of things, that might be true. Where we do, we do compromise, that's fine. But there are certain things that we believe. There are certain things that God's revealed to us as truth that you cannot compromise. And unfortunately, in the spirit of compromising, people are willing to give away they're willing to give away parts of truth and say, okay, okay, I'll accept that as long as we can be together and have peace. Conquest, compromise. It's the way the world has to approach these things. And again, of the two, compromise isn't a bad thing when we're not, when we're not dealing with things that are of such importance, such truth. But God provides another way. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so Jesus is finishing this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This is the beginning. He's setting everything up. And he's got one section here, and next week we'll talk about the, the other section. But what do disciples do? Well, in short, disciples make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Well, again, like so much of the Bible and especially passages like the Beatitudes, people just love to take them and take them out of context and use them however they want. And so they say, peacemaker, oh yeah, okay. So we should really like the person who, who like, always is in control, never gets upset, never too high, never too low, always comes in and, and tries to mediate situations. Not necessarily. Part of us being peacemakers is to really understand what is peace? What is peace from a, from a biblical standpoint? So, let me begin by saying what peace is not. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict. Again, as we said, you could, you could not have conflict because um, somebody has just become so powerful that no one resists. That was kind of in Jesus' day. First century, that, that era is, is sometimes referred to in history as Pax Romana. Pax Romana, Pax is the Latin term for, for, for peace. And it meant the peace of Rome. But the peace of Rome was because the Romans were so powerful in that area that no one dared challenge them. And so you got along because Rome was so powerful. That's really not the peace that that Jesus is talking about here. If that were the case, he would just say, blessed are the peacemakers, and we should be so grateful for these Romans who are occupying our land. It's not simply the absence of conflict. It's not uniformity. Sometimes we, we create peace by just hanging around people who all agree with us, who, who are all like us. And we more and more want to just be around that because then there's less conflict, or it's conflict we can, we can manage. You know, we're okay if, if, if we're all people who like, let's say, professional football, and we all have our favorite team, and we talk about how great our team is, but we really don't want to hang out with the person who hates football. They're too different. And so we, we, we bring peace by some form of uniformity. And we get rid of those who would dissent or we distance ourselves from those who would disagree. It's not what, it's not what Jesus is talking about either. In fact, the message of Christianity is quite the opposite. It's not unity through uniformity, not unity by all of us being the same. It actually says that what, what Jesus came to do is to bring unity with diversity. Well, that's not what it is. It's not uniformity. It's not separating from those with, that we disagree with. It's not simply somebody overpowering and creating the absence of conflict. It's none of that. Instead, what is it? Well, to understand what it is, we have to understand what's at the base of most peacemaking in our world. In our world, what's at the base of most peacemaking is, is still this, this struggle for power. It's, it's power-based, and when you have power-based 
struggle is to try to make peace, it will always end in one of two things. It will either end in, in this, this increasing some form of authoritarianism where somebody or some group of somebody is, is taking more and more control, even if it's made to look like you're free, or it goes the other way. This increasing individualization of people. We more and more are just separating from others and we're only interacting on certain levels but not about things that really matter. We don't talk about important things because we're going to get too upset. There used to be this saying I know when I was growing up that you, in polite company you never talked about religion or politics, right? And then you went through this time where people started talking about religion and politics. But even now, I can almost guarantee you when you went to, if you went to family parties over the holidays, you didn't bring up in, while you're sitting around, you know, everybody's having a good time, you didn't bring up and say, you know that Trump, he's great. Or, you know that Trump, I hate him. You didn't bring it up. Why? Because it would have ruined the party. You don't bring up like, oh, that Governor Ige, can't believe he was reelected. No. You don't bring up like, oh, Governor Ige, he's awesome. You don't bring these things up. And so there's peace, right? There's peace because we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about important things. In fact, if someone brings it up, if you're like me, you, in the name of peace, you try to change the subject. Oh, that Trump, I hate him. You know, when I was a kid, I used to play Trumps all the time. It was fun. My friends and I, that's what we did during lunch. It was awesome. Or, hey, don't you play the trumpet? Right? Change the subject. Move on. That's what we do. Is that really peace? When you're afraid, as a Christian, to talk about Jesus Christ, to talk about the Word of God, which you say is the most important thing, the centralizing thing, the motivating thing in your life. You're afraid to talk about it because you're afraid it's going to disturb the peace. What kind of peace is that? Well, when everything is based on power, that's where it ends up. We just kind of live in our own world. We only relate to people on those things that maybe don't really matter. How's your kids? How's the weather? You know, I love the, you know, basketball team or whatever. We talk about those things, but don't really talk about the things that matter most. So is there another way? Well, that's what Christ came to do. The peace of Christ is not based on power, but it's based on God's unconditional love. The peace of Christ is, means that you can still disagree and you can still argue, but there's the absence of enmity. There's the absence of hostility. In fact, when people who understand the peace of Christ are trying to make peace, they are always trying to think, 
simultaneously, which is really hard to do, but you're simultaneously trying to think about how to bring true peace, the peace of Christ to the whole group, and you're thinking about that person that perhaps you're disagreeing with. You're thinking about both, not just one or the other. And if that's the case, it's okay if you disagree. Because your focus is on this, the overall purpose of what God is doing through Jesus Christ. The peace of Christ also, this is really important, the peace of Christ also presupposes that there is a right and a wrong. It believes that there is a right and wrong that's, that's not relative. There may be a lot of right and wrongs that we say that are relative. Like, is it right to have pews in a church? Or is it wrong? Well, depends. There's not really a right or wrong. You just have pews or don't have pews. It's not a right or wrong. Not in the true sense. But there are things that are right and wrong, that are absolute. For instance, the whole idea of, of peace, the fact that people believe that somehow lack of conflict is better than conflict. That's a right or wrong that a lot of people share. We need to know. We need to know as those called to be peacemakers, what does God mean? Not just about peace, but what does God mean about what is right and what is wrong? It's again why we need discipleship. I like the second half of that verse too because it brings out this, this biblical principle that I think we miss sometimes in our time. It says, for they shall be called sons of God. And it's What's being talked about there is that we will be sons in a different way than the Son of God, or children of God, sons and daughters, if you wish. It's because we'll be, we'll be adopted. We're not a son the same way that Jesus is the son. Jesus is the son, and when it talks about Jesus being the Son of God, it gets to this biblical principle that says, like begets like, that that what you saw, what we see in, in nature is that something produces something like it. And in that sense, you can say it's of the same substance. An apple tree produces an apple. It doesn't produce a lemon. Like begets like. So when the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's the, the one true Son of God, he's the only one like this, what he's saying is that Jesus, the Son of God, is made up of the same stuff that God the Father is. It's the same. How is that different when it calls us sons of God? When it says you are sons of God, because we're not that one unique Son of God. So what is it talking about? Well, I think in some ways it's talking about the same thing. Not that we're made of the same stuff as God, that's not possible. But what it's saying is that, that as sons and daughters of God, as children of God, that if we have been adopted into his family, that we will share his, his dominant characteristics. 
Peacemakers are sons of God because God is a peacemaker. Understand that. It's not like he's asking us to do something that's different, but in being a peacemaker, we are actually doing, in a human, limited way, what God does. And what God has been doing. He's a peacemaker. So what does this mean? Peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. We have a little bit more understanding about what peace means from a biblical standpoint. But what is a peacemaker? Well, we have in, as I just said, that peacemaker is that God is a peacemaker, which means if we understand true peace, that true peace comes from the very heart of God. From the very heart of God, Jesus, in fact, in, in another part of the gospel, says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, never, neither let them be afraid. He's telling them, I've, I've got this peace and I'm giving it to you. And I'm not giving it to you so you can just have this purse of this uh, experience of personal fulfillment, this, this sense of, of serenity. No. I'm giving this to you, first of all, that your hearts won't be troubled. But you're to be peacemakers. How are you going to be peacemakers if you don't have peace yourself? If you don't have peace yourself, how are you going to be peacemakers? And so for us to have this peace, it has to come from God. In fact, this is part of God's overall objective. Why did God create? Why did he um, preserve us instead of just wiping us out? Why did he provide Jesus Christ as a way of salvation? Why did he do all of that? Part of it is to bring peace it's not just a, an add-on, an option. Peace is right there. The very heart. The very heart of, of God's plan. That if we think about the, the kingdom, if we think about even heaven, part of what it's going to be marked by is this peace. It's his objective. Again, it's this... It's this f absence of enmity. I'm not, I'm not thinking the worst of you. I'm not hating you. Even if you do things I don't agree with. Even if you do things that, that might even hurt me. I don't do that. I don't have hostility toward you. Still try to maintain unity. I still try to show God's love. And it's difficult. Remember, we've talked about this. With if, if, if to be able to, to be a peacemaker, we have to know peace. To know peace, we have to know God's love. And we have to be able to love like God loves, which is impossible without God. So don't ever think that this is easy. Don't ever think that when you get it, it's like you know, when you were first learning to ride a bike, 
oh, I got it now, now it's easy. No. When you really get it, you realize how hard it is. And yet it's at the very heart of God. It's at the very heart of His plan that we would be peacemakers. Well, how do we get there? Well, as Jeremy read earlier for us from Romans, true peace begins when we have peace with God. We ourselves have to have peace with God. Um, Romans kind of unpacks this whole thing for us, and I'll give you a very short version, which is Romans talks about how God created us, and he revealed himself to us in creation, but humanity says, no thank you. We're going to go away from you. And we're going to go so far away from you that we're not going to consider you or your truth or anything like that. So, but we still are living in this world and this existence and we, we still have questions and we still have problems and we still have concerns and, and, and we're afraid. Um, this world seems to be like out of control and, and we, we need help and we know you can't help us. So we're going to make up our own explanation. We're going to make up our own gods. And so, because of that, we create this, this, this kind of rebellion against God, and we create this relationship with God that, that is, from our side, just full of this, this enmity and this hostility towards God. You know, we don't even want to hear what He has to say anymore. And so there's no peace, and we become objects of his wrath. And everybody goes, yeah, I, that's, yeah, so God, he's doing the same thing, right? He's, he's, he's being wrathful, he's showing his power, right? That's what God's doing. That's not what Paul says in Romans. Paul doesn't say, and God was so upset at rebellious human beings that he threw lightning bolts at them, or that he afflicted them with many plagues. No. He didn't say any of that. Instead, Romans says that we're the objects of his wrath because he let us go. We wanted to go, we wanted to reject him, and he let us go. It's part of his plan. I'm not going to tell you I understand his plan perfectly. I think I understand a little bit about it. But he let us go. And I think part of the reason that he let us go is because he wanted us to know this is what happens when we try to do it on our own. This is the kind of religions we'll create. These are the kind of societies that we'll create. This is the way we will base how we interact with one another. He wanted us to know that. And we can know it. We can not only know it today, we can look back through history and know it. But then in Romans, in Romans he talks about that God's plan 
also involved a way back. Even though he let us go, it involved a way back. And the way back is faith. And not just faith in something or faith in someone, but it was faith, first of all, in God and his promises. And then at the time that Paul's writing, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Let me read that passage again. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons we have peace with God is that what Jesus did for us in that he didn't just stand in my place. He didn't just die in my place. When I have faith in Jesus Christ, he forever is in my place. When God looks at me, he doesn't look at me and my righteousness. He looks at the righteousness of Christ as standing for, for all who would believe. We have peace. Peace partly means that we're no longer objects of his wrath. So instead of letting us go, he now draws us back. He calls us back. It talks about, in verse 2, it says, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're reconnected with him. We can stand before him unashamed, not because we're great and we're awesome, but because of what Christ has done for us. We have peace with God. It says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You know, we, we, we do apologetics conferences here. I've, I've read about them my whole life and, and tried to understand, you know, these different proofs and, ex, you know, all these things about, you know, proving, you know, the historical record of the Bible and the, the philosophical and, and everything and, and all of that. But let me tell you something. None of that matters. None of that matters if this proof that we see in verse 5 is not real in our lives. None of it matters. It doesn't matter how much you can intellectually, evidence-based, argue about why Christianity makes sense, why the Bible is consistent, why it's truth. It doesn't matter if we don't know verse 5. That because of faith, we will go through all these experiences. And these experiences include suffering. But in verse 5 it says, And hope does not put us to shame. We go through this suffering, we have hope, and we're not put to shame because of our hope. We're not looked at as, and we even feel ourselves like, man, I'm just hoping in what I don't even really know. He goes, no, you can know. 
You can know why your hope is something that's true. And he says this, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you know that? Everybody talks about, oh, you know, you're supposed to have the presence of the Spirit, and how do I know that, and all this other stuff. Well, it's right here. It's right here. You want to know you have peace with God? You want to know you have true faith in God? Well, then you have experienced the pouring out of love from God into your life. A love that you know wasn't there before. A love that is in no way centered in yourself. Do you know it? That's where peace with God begins. Because when this, when this happens, guess what? It's a lot easier to be a peacemaker when everybody who you're trying to make peace with starts from this position of having God's Spirit pour out love in our lives. It's a lot easier to deal with conflict. It's a lot easier to deal with hurt feelings. It's a lot easier to deal with disagreements, differences, whatever it is. If we all have started from the standpoint that, that the Spirit has poured out God's love in our lives. That's why true peace has to begin when we have peace with God. And as this verse makes clear and we find in other places in Scripture, peace with God only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot have peace with God if you're going to try to avoid Jesus. You have to go to Jesus. You have to go to the cross. You cannot hope to have peace with God. And this is part of the problem with what's happening in the world today and what's sadly happening more and more in the church today. In the church today, we want to talk about love, we want to talk about peace, we want to talk about hope, we want to talk about joy, but we want to leave behind sin. We don't want to talk about sin. You know why we're afraid to talk about sin? It's not because we know we're sinners. That's not why. I've been around church long enough to, to, to find that most people don't have problems talking about at least some of their sins. Back in the 70s, it was almost a badge of honor to talk about how much sin you had done before you became a Christian. It was almost like, who can top this? You know, I was an alcoholic. I was a drug dealer. I was an alcoholic and a drug dealer. I was in prison for 10 years. I was in for 20 years. I killed 47 people. You know, it would just keep building and building to the point that some Christian speakers actually would, would make up their testimonies, embellish them to show how much God had saved them. And it's not talking about sin. I think what we're afraid of is when we start talking about sin, we might actually start mentioning things that the Bible says is sin. And we're not so afraid to mention them or to, 
just because we're afraid to mention them. We're afraid what other people are going to think about us. If we even read what the Bible says is sin. That's a problem. Because when we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're not just having faith in the Son of God or faith in a really good man. We're, we're having faith in the Son of God who became man and died on the cross, and don't miss this part, for the sins of the world. And so much, even when I was at seminary, so much so much emphasis wants to avoid talking about sin. We can't. Peace with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ and not just the person of Jesus Christ, but the work of Jesus Christ. It's why Christianity is going to become increasingly unpopular in our society because our society has moved on. It is a post-Christian America. Make no, make no doubt about it. And it's not just because they believe that, that all beliefs in God is some kind of myth or some kind of wishful thinking and it's not true. It's more than that. It's because society is moving to places that the Bible says are wrong. And we don't want to deal with it better to leave that embarrassing book behind. Well, in the midst of that, in the midst of the society and the world that we've been placed in, a true disciple always seeks peace with God, peace within him or herself, and with others. In 2 Corinthians Paul writes about this. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And here's the important part here for this message and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Peacemaker, reconciliation, is fundamentally the same thing. As followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, we've been given that ministry. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And what Paul's talking about here is the first place of reconciliation is the reconciliation of, of the world, of people, with God himself through Jesus Christ. We need to be about that. We need to, to, to speak preach, discuss this message of reconciliation. It says we're ambassadors for Christ. 
And he's making his appeal through us. He's not continually sending down revelations. He is making his appeal through his followers, through his disciples. We should want to make peace. This isn't just about being a peacemaker and being a mediator to handle disputes, but it's handling the most important dispute in our lives. And that is the fact that that all of us begin this world, in this world, not reconciled to God. Being a peacemaker, it's It's not just aligning various parties with each other. Being a peacemaker actually begins by aligning all the parties with God. And when we do that, when we align the parties with God, when we align the parties with His love, and we align the parties with His holiness, only then, Only then can we have true peace, free from oppression, and really moving towards a unity that can be maintained. This is our job. It's our job as disciples. We're never to compromise the truth, but part of that truth says, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Part of that truth says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I told you that this message is about what one of the main gauges of, is our church healthy? Am I healthy? Are you healthy? And it centers around this. How much of a peacemaker are you? How much are you helping people have peace with God? How much when, when, there's, when there's disputes that you're trying to help people reconcile and find peace? How much when you yourself have a dispute with someone, are you, are you wanting to somehow reconcile and bring peace? It tells you a ton about who you are in Christ. And where you are in your walk tells you a ton about where I am. I think God can can grow churches numerically in a lot of different ways. But I think if we want to do it from a healthy way, that one of the things that we want to, to make sure is that we have a solid foundation of as many of us as possible who are committed to being peacemakers who are committed to working towards reconciliation, whether it's for for us personally in our relationships or with anybody else, that we're committed to it. I think then, I think then we will not just be healthy. I think God will do amazing things. But as long as we harbor spirits of, of, of wanting to you know, get our way or our feelings get hurt and, and we, even though we don't make a big deal out of it, we just don't say, we just sit in the corner upset. It's not a healthy church. That's going to be exposed at some point as the church continues to go. Can you, can you imagine 
if we start actually making a huge impact in this community and then we start getting pushback, if we get pushback from the community because of the stances we're taking or the things that we're saying or the programs that we're doing, if that happens and we aren't together, guess what's going to happen to us? We're gone. And we become just another tragic example of people who say they're following God, but when things get tough, we fall apart. Peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers.